The term lotus birth means not cutting the umbilical cord and leaving the placenta attached to the newborn, even after it expels from the uterus, until it detaches and necroses off spontaneously, which can take anywhere from 3 up to 10 days, and at times, sometimes up to 15 days after birth. The first reported case of lotus birth can go back to 2004 in Australia, although it has its roots in the 1970s. Supporters of this procedure state that the newborn is just better perfused, it's endowed with a more robust immune system, and is somehow less stressed by having its placenta next to it until it falls off. Is this true? Is this practice safe? And more importantly, what are OB healthcare professionals expected to do once this request is made by the mother or one of the parents? This is both a medical and obstetrical issue, as well as an ethical one. Nonetheless, there are real risks here, including neonatal death, and that has led professional societies to release statements condemning this practice. And we're going to summarize all of this in this episode, and I'm going to provide some practical strategies and some workarounds when a patient asks us to participate in the lotus birth process. Ready? Lots to cover. Let's dive in here into the lotus birth. Our goal is to keep everyone up to date in practicing evidence-based medicine because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. Prior to our discourse, just a quick disclosure, it's imperative to understand a person's personal beliefs and wishes, and in no way is this episode to diminish those thoughts or preferences in any individual seeking this birth option. However, as medical healthcare professionals, we also have a duty to adhere to evidence-based principles and serve as an agent for individual and public safety. When you kind of think about it, I mean, let's put this in perspective, right? I mean, at some point in history, somebody had to say, I think it's time we cut this cord off this kid. (laughs) I mean, when did that happen? I mean, it's totally unclear how this practice of umbilical cord separation from the placenta to the child became routine. The Tratola, which is a group of writings regarding women's health care that dates back from the 12th century, provided specific instructions for cord cutting. It said, quote, the cord should be cut, a charm should be spoken about the procedure, and then the cord should be wrapped with a string of an instrument that is plucked or bowed, end quote. Pretty weird, huh? But oddly, there's no mention of the timing of when that should be done. The first records of cutting the cord before the placenta actually left the uterus actually can be traced back to the 17th century. Lotus birthing is not a mainstream practice, but numbers are on the rise largely because of social media. Cutting the umbilical cord is an accepted medical act, which is done routinely across the world. In recent years, however, this school of thought that you don't have to cut the cord has emerged and is really gaining a lot of steam. I mean, isn't that amazing, huh? The power of social media. I mean, in a world where people question real medical and scientific stuff, but then somebody says, well, I don't think you should cut the cord. Just let the placenta be stuck to the kid for about two weeks. And people are like, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. I don't know. It's just kind of weird. Okay, let's talk about the name Lotus Birth. Lotus. Ah. I mean, doesn't that just sound so meditation-ish? I mean, right? I mean, for decades now, the lotus flower has been the symbol, the de facto sign of meditation. 
but that has nothing to do with this practice. No, lotus does not have anything to do with the act of meditation, although lotus birth actually has a lot of spirituality that's attributed to it by its followers. No, the name is actually somebody's actual name. The term was coined by 1979 by a woman, Claire Lotus Day. Day promoted this lotus birth, which was named after her, after she observed an anthropoid ape that didn't sever the cord after their infant was born. So she thought, hey, that seems to be a good idea. I mean, nature's obviously doing it. Not a physician, just letting you know she saw an animal do this and said, yeah, I think this is, sounds fantastic. The lack of intervention in lotus birth has attracted people in this natural birth phenomenon, and it's actually gained further steam by an Australian practitioner who rediscovered the writings from Claire Lotus Day. So even though it was first coined in the 1970s, in 2004, it really gained steam. All it needs is somebody to find it, dig it up, and then put some fuel to it. And that's how this thing started to take off. That's right. No professional society ever endorsed it. This was started by an individual who thought, man, this seems to be a good idea. And of course, now lotus birth is synonymous with this practice of not cutting the umbilical cord and leaving the child connected to the placenta until it naturally falls off. Now listen to this. In an attempt to make this sound less new agey, right? I mean, lotus birth, very new agey. I dig it. But in order to get away from that and give it much more scientific credibility and something that's based in medicine, some supporters of this process have exchanged the term lotus birth for an alternative name. So sometimes in print, you'll see it called UCNS. What the heck is UCNS? Oh, it's very simple. That's umbilical cord non-severance. Yep, umbilical cord non-severance is the same thing as the lotus birth. Nice. Oh, as a quick aside, this is very similar to my personal, self-propagated alternative name for cesarean section that I've been trying to get somebody to follow me with for decades, but nobody will. I like using this term in labor and delivery mainly just for the looks that I get. But I really think since we're in the business of changing names that we should stop calling the C-section a C-section. I mean, cesarean section. How overused did that, right? C-section, so common. I have proposed for the last several years that we start calling it vaginal bypass surgery. I mean, doesn't that just sound better than C-section? That patient in room two, she needs vaginal bypass surgery. Yep, if we're in the business of changing names from lotus birth to umbilical cord non-severance, I can say vaginal bypass surgery. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. According to the Lotus Birth Movement, or otherwise known as the Natural Birth Movement, 
I mean, it's all kind of natural birth, isn't it? I mean, I guess unless you have a vaginal bypass surgery, just birth is natural to begin with anyway. But according to that natural birth view, birth is seen from the standpoint of the fetus. And it's claimed by the proponents of this process that clamping the cord while it's still pulsating or even removing it after it stops pulsating could be harmful to the child because somehow it's part of the child itself. Look, I'm just reporting what I'm told, so don't send me any emails. Some advocates of lotus birth have stated that cutting the cord is a type of medical violence. Violence? I mean, I mean, is that right? It's violent? But nonetheless, once again, I'm just reporting what I found. There are also strong advocates for the practice which state that the placenta belongs to the child, so it can be removed until it is naturally detached. Conventional medical teaching, though, has always held that the function of the placenta, of course, is oxygenation and nutrient transfer in utero alone. And once the child is ex-utero, it's no longer a necessary organ. That's why it's termed, in general senses, medical waste, but not in the lotus birth world. While generally discarded, unless it requires some pathological study, some states do have legal basis to ask the mother or the parents if they'd like the placenta to keep for whatever reason. In 2015, the Texas state legislature actually passed a law allowing for a mother to keep her placenta following birth, but there are some regulations here. The law, which is Chapter 172 in Title II, Subtitle H of the state's Health and Safety Code, spells out the specifics for this process of letting the mother take the placenta home. The hospital still retains the right to keep a portion of the placenta for any testing if necessary, but provided that the mother fills out a consent to release the placenta that she can take it home, and if she tests negative for certain infectious diseases, she's free to take it with her upon discharge and do with it whatever she likes. But this, of course, is assuming that the cord has been severed and is not attached to the child. Nonetheless, the precedent has been set, so there is an open door, at least for Texas, for this to occur because the mom can take the placenta home, even though it's implied it's supposed to be separate from the child. It's recommended to check with your own institutional policies and procedures, and if applicable state laws are calling for any kind of restriction or allowance for this regarding the disposal of placental tissue where you live. So make sure that you follow your hospital's rules, and if you don't have a policy and procedures in place at your institution, get one made now, because this issue of lotus birth really is becoming popular, even though professional societies are putting the brakes on this weird practice. Okay, you've got to be thinking, wait a minute, I've gotten a couple of minutes into this podcast and you're telling me so the kid I'm taking home got the cord attached and then there's this hanging placenta off. Yep, that's exactly what I'm saying. So if you're thinking, well, isn't that going to go bad and kind of start to smell? Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's no standard way to store or keep the placenta safe as it's connected to the child. There's also no medical advice on how to do this correctly or in the most sanitary way. Some people store the placenta in a bag, while others decide to keep it out into the open air. Some even put herbs or essential oils on it. But none of these methods have been studied in any scientific way, and its safety is absolutely not proven. 
look, podcast family, I consider myself a pretty socially conscious capitalist. I mean, I have no problem with innovation and trying to fill a need. But this whole Lotus Birth movement has spawned a variety of online vendors selling their postpartum Lotus placenta bags to, quote, safely carry the decomposing placenta, end quote, in a nice little sack that they can fill with essential oils or herbs and then sprinkle it with a little bit of flowers. Yeah, this is a real market. I'm telling you, you can find anything online. If you're thinking, wait a minute, how did this thing even become popular? I mean, isn't that just kind of weird? It's kind of gross. Why would anybody do that? Well, as anything, as in any weird myth that's out there, there's an element of truth in it that gets misapplied, all right? And I think that's super interesting how there's always some component of fact of some scientific statement that gets totally misapplied here. And for some, this is kind of getting confused in the delayed cord clamp movement. I know, totally different, but not in the eyes of the Lotus Birth community. I'm telling you, I've done some research on this, and they kind of use this interchangeably with delayed cord clamp. Not the same thing. Of course, the March of Dimes, ACOG, SMFM, and the CDC, and the American College of Nurse Midwifery, they all endorse delayed cord clamping. But that's about 30 seconds to a maximum of three to five minutes. I mean, at the max, it's when the umbilical cord stops pulsating, and that stops within five minutes of birth. There's no medical organization that endorses the continual attachment of a decomposing, non-perfused clump of tissue to an otherwise healthy child. Not one. It seems that the benefits of delayed cord clamping is incorrectly being extended to the 5 to 10 days for complete cord desiccation and necrosis of the child. But this is completely incorrect. The advocates of Lotus birth also attribute some spiritual benefits to the child. But again, I think we'll just leave that there to not step on anybody's toes. All right, we are moving on. Let's talk about the problems here. There are real problems risks here. And I'm going to give you a story that's real and that's heartbreaking. I mean, just one of these cases, and this is a real case, I mean, it just stops you in your track. I read this case and I'm like, oh my goodness. I mean, heartbroken when you're going to hear this. It's going to be the tragic case of Harlow Eden. But before I get into that, look, let's be very clear here. Professional societies like the AAP, that's the American Academy of Pediatrics, and ACOG have given statements that these, quote, alternative birth practices, end quote, are just not advised or endorsed in any shape or fashion. Several studies have shown that letting an umbilical cord and placenta separate on their own puts significant risk onto the child. At the minimum, it's omphalatitis, that's infection of the umbilical cord stump, and at the most, septic shock. And if you're thinking, well, that's fine, all right, so you get some antibiotics, a kid will be fine. I mean, no kid has actually died from this, right? Nope, that's actually untrue. Sadly, yes, children have died from this. Let's talk about the tragic case of Harlow Eden. The following is the narrative of care as written by Clay Jones and published on June 26, 2020 in Science-Based Medicine. In 2017, Harlow was born via emergency C-section in a Melbourne hospital in Australia. She was a miracle baby born after 13 years and a dozen IVF attempts. Can we just stop there for a minute? 13 years of trying and then little Harlow was born. 
this and exposure to all the manner of pseudoscientific medical information that was being poured into the parents led Harlow's parents to choose the Lotus birth. Their stated goal was to ease Harlow's transition and boost her immune response. As is often the case, because parents unfortunately tend to cluster these types of poor medical decisions, Harlow's parents also chose to refuse evidence-based recommendations for intramuscular vitamin K and vaccination. They also practiced vaginal seeding, another risk factor for serious infection. Sadly, they also refused initial attempts by hospital staff to move Harlow to a special care nursery for closer observation after some initial hard transition into the extrauterine life. By 16 hours of age, Harlow developed significant hypoglycemia, which can occur in any baby but is much more likely to occur when they are sick. At that point, the umbilical cord was cut and she was transferred to the special care nursery. She soon developed signs of septus with respiratory distress and poor perfusion, so antibiotics, of course, were initiated. Despite this, she died in the following day after being transferred to a tertiary care center. The coroner determined that Harlow died from sepsis in the setting of a lotus birth, and yes, the bacteria was actually proven to have come from the placenta that was at the baby's side. Look, guys, I'm definitely not trying to make Lotus Birth out to be the villain. I'm not trying to do that at all. I mean, the information is just kind of what the information is. And this is just what I've discovered in two days of research as we've put this this podcast episode together. I'm just trying to be true to evidence-based facts and let you know that this provider who wrote up this narrative, I mean, he was really pissed about this whole issue and is taking this as a personal vendetta against these unorthodox practices. And those are his words, this unorthodox orthodox alternative birth practices that, according to this provider, is putting babies at risk. So I'll be very clear, that narrative that I read you is not trying to be shock value. Uh, I'm not trying to push you one way or the other. I'm just reporting what I found and let you know how passionate people are both for this and obviously against it. So, I mean, this makes sense, right? I mean, we don't really have to go into the pathophysiology here, but we're going to do it anyway. I mean, blood stops circulating to the umbilical cord and placenta within minutes of leaving the uterus. Once fresh blood is no longer circulating to the tissue, the tissue begins to die. And it does that fast. As that happens, the bacteria in the placental stump quickly, I mean quickly, starts to multiply. If the baby and the placenta are still connected, that's an open conduit for infection. It's pretty easy to understand. So both professional societies, ACOG and AAP, have stated that physicians should caution those interested in this practice that there's no compelling evidence that the baby benefits from having this discarded organ still attached to him or her for days. There's also a lack of research regarding its safety and there are published case reports about real risks here. Here's how this works. Look, according to the Lotus Birth Guidelines, you're not even supposed to clamp the cord, right? So the cord is an open conduit. Well, what happens is that there becomes this low-flow, low-resistance system. And when blood, of course, pools, it's a risk for thrombosis. So outside of infection, I mean, there's a real risk here of thrombotic risk of clots being dislodged and entering the fetal circulation. I mean, this is bad on several levels. I mean, we've done some research, and it's not just this case of Harlow which is tragic. I mean, in the journal Clinical Pediatrics in 2019, 
they actually published another case report of this 20-hour-old baby whose parents chose UCNS, right? Remember, that's umbilical cord non-severance. And the baby was brought in in an agonal state. I mean, it had to be resuscitated, required antibiotics, and required in-house treatment for six weeks. I mean, is that worth it? I mean, this whole natural process seems to be more harm than benefit. That's exactly what the data show. That's why the AAP, the American Academy of Pediatrics, has strong statements here. The report titled, Risks of Infectious Disease in Newborns Exposed to Alternative Perinatal Practices, was published by the Committee on Infectious Diseases and the Committee on Fetus and Newborn. This was published in the journal Pediatrics in February of 2022. And there's no mixing of words here. According to the AAP, quote, umbilical cord non-severance has no clear benefits to date and can increase the risk of neonatal sepsis attributed to the presence of necrotic umbilical and placental tissue, end quote. It goes on to say this practice should not be endorsed. The Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, or the RCOG, also stated in their statement against it. According to the RCOG, quote, if left for a period of time after birth, there's a risk of infection in the placenta, which can consequently spread to the child. The placenta is particularly prone to infection as it contains a high amount of blood material. At the post-delivery stage, it has no circulation and is essentially dead. The RCOG strongly recommends that any baby that undergoes lotus birthing be very closely monitored for signs of infection, end quote. All right, family, we're about three-fourths of the way, all right? Now, I'm going to give you some advice here on how to handle this request for Lotus birth in just a minute. But if there's so much risks here, I mean, why is this still being entertained? Why is this being done? Well, it has to do, of course, with that one word, ethics. <laughs> Despite the lack of medical benefits and established true risks, this Lotus birth phenomenon really is an issue of maternal autonomy because a mother is really the, the next decision maker for the child. A woman may request a lotus birth practice in order to exercise her right to individual choice and self-governance. However, this ethical principle of autonomy also requires that the woman or parents get the right informed consent and they have the right information so they can truly balance the risks and benefits because the benefits here are none. This balance lies in the respect for patient autonomy and the professional's role and duty to non-maleficence and beneficence. Remember those words? They actually mean something here. I mean, the baby has to be considered a vulnerable person that has to be protected. Taking into account what is known of the risks and benefits of lotus birth, authors have concluded that this is ethically inadmissible. However, it's a conflict because we can't violate a patient's autonomy. That's a dilemma, isn't it? Man, darn ethics. I mean, we've got to adhere to this thing. Look how complicated this is. But think about it. This whole conflict between medical ethics and patients' wishes is actually not new, right? I mean, we have similar neonatal conflicts in this arena, don't we? What about the mother or the parents who decline ophthalmic eye treatment for the newborn or refuse vitamin K or newborn vaccines? I mean, these cannot be done without their consent, recognizing that even state statutes have medical exemptions. 
Look, I live in the state of Texas, so let's take Texas law as an example here, looking at ophthalmia neonatorum prophylaxis. I mean, it's Texas state law. This has to be given as an erythromycin eye ointment within two hours of birth. And if erythromycin isn't available, we have to find a suitable alternative based upon our state health uh, recommendations. However, it's written in subsection C of the Texas Administration Code that a physician, nurse, midwife, or other person in attendance of childbirth who is unable to apply this prophylactic eye treatment because of objection of a parent is not considered in violation of the law. In other words, even though it's state statute, if the mom says don't put that in the kid's eye, even though there's obvious benefits there, we can't do it. So once again, even though benefits are shown, we can't violate patients' autonomy. Okay, so what are we as healthcare professionals supposed to do? I mean, if you don't agree with Lotus Birth and somebody asks you for this and you've got objections because of safety concerns, what are you supposed to do? Well, first of all, our duty, according to professional guidelines, is to educate parents on the real risks here of this practice, knowing that there's absolutely no known medical benefits and true risks. Our job is to present that as a risks versus benefits discussion. I'm going to share with you the script that I have used with my patients. And in the one time that a patient has actually asked for this in the last year, the patient actually changed her mind. And again, very non-confrontational, but this is something that I would recommend using. Ready? Here we go. I understand you're considering having a lotus birth. I completely understand your desire to make your birth experience as natural as possible. But please keep in mind that this request is not recommended by the AAP nor by any professional OBGYN society. And I'm actually concerned about real risk to your new baby. Our professional scientific and medical guidelines say that this is not an evidence-based practice and it can carry certain risks to the child, including severe infection and, at the worst, even death. Now, delayed cord clamping, though, is evidence-based and it offers numerous health benefits. So I think delayed cord clamping is a much better alternative to keep the baby safe. End quote. Well, again, in my N of one, that patient actually said, oh, delayed core clamp. I thought that was the same thing. Nope. So just by, again, in a non-confrontational way, giving some information, that literally took about a minute. We had the discussion. He's like, yeah, I'm not doing that. I think we'll just do the delayed core clamp instead. Well, thank goodness. If the parents, however, still continue to want the practice after this risk versus benefits discussion, then here's the guidelines. Yep medical professionals should be able to honor the patient's autonomy in a way that doesn't actually condone or endorse it. In other words, look, I don't like it. I don't recommend it, but I can't force you not to do it. So once I give you the risk versus benefits, it's all on you. Some hospitals actually have patients sign a basically a waiver that they've been given this information. And some hospitals have been very proactive, like the University of Michigan Children's Hospital, that actually give a pamphlet out to give some helpful tips that says right at the top, we don't recommend that you do this. There's no evidence that this is good. But if you're going to do it anyway, follow these steps to try to keep the baby safe. And that's different than endorsing it. 
that's different than recommending it. That's just saying, look, I know you're going to do it. I can't change your mind. Well, at least try to keep these things in mind. I'm going to read you some of the questions that are in that Michigan's uh, Children's Hospital uh, pamphlet because I think it's pretty good. And by the way, it's not just that hospital. A variety of hospitals across the U.S. and internationally have now made these kind of pamphlets to try to keep babies safe as we function as newborn advocates. I think the University of Michigan really did a nice job here at their children's hospital. One of their questions states, oh, what are the first signs that I should seek immediate medical care for for my child with the lotus birth? And it's a very clear point. It's number one, if there's redness or warmth or swelling at the side of the umbilical area, if the child has a temperature, of course, greater than 100.4, if the child is feeding poorly, if 24 to 40 hours of life, the baby has had less than six to eight feedings, that could be a warning sign. If there's less than two urinations and less than two stools, that's a warning sign. And between 48 hours and three days of life, if there's less than 8 to 12 feedings or less than three urines and three stools, get the child checked. There's also another little question about, well, when will my umbilical cord actually detach from the child? And the answer is anywhere from three days up to 15 days. Look at that variability. That's why this is super unpredictable. Another question addressed by University of Michigan is, well, how do I take care of the placenta? And of course, the first sentence is, look, there's no evidence on what to do with this thing. But if you're going to take it home, then keep the placenta next to the baby to avoid any unnecessary pulling on the cord. Lift and feed and cuddle the baby carefully. Dress the baby loosely with clothing that opens at the front. And even though there's not a specific way to preserve the placenta, some patients choose to leave the placenta open to air, while some actually place the placenta in a herb or an oil bath. Again, no evidence for one treatment or the other. Other hospitals in the U.S. and internationally have done very similar things. The government of South Australia has a patient pamphlet that you can find online that states, quote, Regarding lotus birth, there is no evidence that keeping the placenta attached to the child has any health or spiritual benefits for the mother or the baby. And because of well-founded concerns about increased risks of infection, the SA, that's South Australian Health Services, strongly advises against this practice, end quote. But again, just like University of Michigan, and it goes on to say, if you're going to do it, well, at least look out for these things. I mean, I really don't feel that we should turn our back on these patients. If they're dead set on doing it and they know the risks, I mean, that's part of informed refusal, right? That's part of autonomy. We should never turn our backs on patients. We should always be available to take them back, especially to observe a child who otherwise could not give a word for him or herself. So as we wrap this up, What does this mean as our clinical implications? Well, I'm going to tell you that in our close. Well, I think it's pretty simple, isn't it? No medical professional should endorse or condone this practice. However, as stated by every medical ethical board, out of respect for patient's autonomy and self-determination, we actually have little ability to actively prevent it. Our job should be that of medical educators and as patient advocates. And in this case, the patient is the child. So we should keep the child's well-being in mind, just like we do antepartum. However, having said that, we have a limitation, and that's the patient's autonomy. So medical ethics, yep, it's there to protect the patient. And sometimes we can't even protect the patients from themselves. 
So having said all that, it remains that according to the evidence, the best practice to tell patients of what to do also applies to helicopter parenting. And that's sometimes you just got to cut the cord. As always, we're thankful for you. And I hope this podcast episode has helped you regarding the lotus birth. We'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.